Hello and welcome to the Ninth Labour Leave podcast. My name is David Price and with me here today in the studio I have John Mills. Hi John. Hi there. And Ollie Hewitson. Hi Ollie. Hello. Right, in the light of the dramatic events in Parliament last night, uh, we are going to discuss the unravelling process of Brexit and how to get it through the House of Commons, or not as the case may be. But we're going to start by looking at exactly what happened and uh, examining why there's been such widespread anger and disaffection with the uh, Theresa May Chequers deal. John, can you explain exactly what the Chequers plan is and how it differs from the previous plan that uh, David Davis at the Department of Exiting the EU has worked up? Well, I mean, there are really basically two approaches to what we do with the European Union. One is that uh, we effectively stay inside the single market and the customs union, uh, even if nominally we're outside the European Union, and uh, we comply with all their requirements and stay very close. The other is that we have a more independent approach uh, which would be a, a, a treaty rather like the one that was done between the EU and Canada, uh, where, where we are a really independent country. Obviously, we have to comply with all the requirements that uh, the EU has if you sell into the EU. But outside the EU, we'd then be able to uh, do whatever we wanted. Uh, these are really the two choices. And what happened was that uh, the Department for Exiting the European Union, David Davis's department, prepared... A, a paper which was largely uh, around the Canada-type approach. And we, just if I can interrupt, um, the EU has already uh, offered the UK the Canada a deal, hasn't it, in its basic form, I believe? Yes, I mean, several months ago. I mean, I think right from the very beginning, that was probably what the EU would have preferred and was on the table and we could have accepted it. Uh, obviously, the closer you get to the 29th of March when we leave the EU, the more tricky it is to... Uh, switch to um, a no-deal type scenario because of the time it takes to prepare. But in principle, um, I mean, I think there was a lot to be said for the Canada-type deal right from the very beginning, and that's what the uh, David Davis's department was working up. So it's, it's not a, a fantastical notion. I mean, the idea no. that many people have been saying, oh, they'll never give us a trade deal of any sort, they pretty much have said already that they would give us a Canada-type deal, which is a basic sort of uh, uh, textbook free trade deal, isn't it, uh, on, on goods, I believe? Yes, that's right. Uh, all, I mean, pretty well all goods are covered by the Canada deal and some services. And uh, what uh, I think a lot of people in this country hoped is that there would be a more comprehensive deal on services to supplement the one on, on goods. And I think if we'd done that and we'd maintained good relations with the European Union on all the things where it makes sense for us to do so, on aviation and terrorism and climate change and all these other things, now this would have been an outcome which would have been pretty satisfactory for Leave people, reasonably satisfactory for those who were in the Remain camp, and I think would have done something really important to stabilise down Britain's relationship with the rest of the, uh, with the continent of Europe. And we've had something that uh, looked if it's going to work in the long term. I think one of the problems about what's happened with the uh, Chequers thing, is, which has swung way over towards the uh, Remain camp's uh, objectives, 
is that it's going to leave a large proportion of the country, probably more than half, feeling very dissatisfied, even if this goes through Parliament, which I think is very questionable, and it's not going to provide a long-term solution to our relations with the EU27. And how, how is the Chequers plan different to the Canada deal? I mean, when, you, when people talk about free trade deals, you know, we imagine that it's two parties saying, well, we'll cut the tariffs on cars or on tinned tomatoes or whatever. Um, is the Chequers deal really so different to that basic idea? How, how does it differ from the Canada deal? Well, the real difference is that effectively, uh, with the uh, Chequers deal, we're going to be staying in both the customs union and the single market. I mean, there may be uh, nominally some derogations from that, but in practice, uh, all the evidence suggests that these really won't amount to anything very much. And this means that the EU will be setting the standards not just for what we sell into the continent of Europe, where everybody agrees that you've got to comply with their standards, but it will affect all sorts of things internally in the UK. But the 80, whatever it is, or 92% of companies that don't even trade with the EU, you know, it affects all sorts of things like the 48-hour week and what holiday entitlement people who are... Uh, get who are not uh, on full time, all these sorts of things where, you know, there may be differences of view, but where one of the outcomes from the referendum was that people wanted to take these sort of decisions in the UK and not have them taken on a sort of continent-wide basis. And this is the so-called common rule book in inverted commas. It's basically yes. 170,000 pages of EU law, isn't it? Well, really? I mean, the common rule book is effectively uh, the single market. It's what the EU has accumulated over a very long period of time. Huge, huge numbers of regulations, as you, as, as you rightly describe. So it's, in effect, remained by any other name. It's saying that we will stay um, tied to the apron strings, if you like, of the European Union and all of its laws. And we will, instead of having a trade deal as two independent countries deciding to drop tariffs between countries, we actually basically remain physically connected by a sort of um, umbilical cord, is that, is that it? Yes, I mean, it's really the worst of all worlds in the sense that um, it carries all the disadvantages of EU membership, the cost, the uh, lack of border control, uh, the uh, governance of the European uh, Court of Justice, the common agricultural policy and common fisheries policy, largely controlled as well, our ability to uh, forge uh, trade links with other countries, all this sort of thing is, is very questionable. Plus still very large sums of money almost certainly being paid across the exchanges into the uh, EU budget, net of any receipts we get. So, I mean, there's all the downsides, uh, but without the plus side of being able to at least control what was happening with the European Union and to have a vote in the way it developed. I mean, now we're in, 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 in the situation where we're both very heavily controlled by the European Union and no saying what happens. And I mean, this is an extraordinary position. Well, the, the irony thing. is is that um, many people voted leave because we thought that we didn't really have any kind of meaningful say because of the quality, uh, quality uh, majority voting system, the way that the, uh, the, the voting system in the EU works. Uh, and, uh, and now we will effectively have no say whatsoever. Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, this is an extraordinary position for the fifth or sixth largest economy in the, in the world uh, to be in. And as you rightly say, I mean, if people wanted to vote for more control, I mean, this is right at the very opposite end of the spectrum. This is less control uh, than we had before. Absolutely. So it's 
um, understandable that so many people on the Brexit side, uh, whether they support the Labour Party or the Conservatives or anybody else, uh, have really kind of become incandescent with rage with this this switch because it is a dramatic switch. It's not just a slight tweak to the plan that, that the Conservative government had been working up. It's uh, effectively a U-turn, isn't it? Well, it's a very substantial departure from what uh, the Prime Minister was said in the Lancaster speech and uh, in a number of other places in Florence and elsewhere where she's made speeches about what was going to be. Um, and what is quite clear from the polls is that uh, she's failed to carry the bulk of the population with these uh, proposals. It's not just that she's in great difficulty in Parliament, although obviously she is. But it's quite clear uh, from the polls that uh, I think the ones I saw, something like 40% of people oppose the uh, Chequers settlement and only 20% support it. So, I mean, that's a very big gap. And I think it's a very big lesson for Labour in all this too, which is that if you look at the way polls are developed, uh, you know, there's a big chunk of the Labour Party which is very Remain-orientated, which is piling up huge majorities in seats in London and other uh, university towns. But much more worrying is if you look at what's happening to support for Labour among the C2, Ds and Es, uh, the more working-class sort of supporters that Labour's have, this has been eroded away substantially over the last six months. And it's hard to believe, with Brexit being the head news story practically every day, that this has got nothing to do with the fact that a lot of these people think that the Labour Party in Parliament really isn't pushing through the Brexit which they voted in 2016. I think UKIP have also done very well out of it, though. I think they've had a, a six-point bounce in the space of, what, a fortnight? Yes, they have. So at the minute, I think the Tories are really suffering from it because most of their former UKIP voters and even some, you know, just standard long-term Tory voters are all breaking uh, for UKIP at the minute and, and Labour haven't really suffered at all. Um, you know, Labour's vote hasn't really moved for the last fortnight. The Tories, I think they've fallen, was it four or five points? UKIP's gained six. So really the Tories have just lost a substantial number of votes to UKIP in the space of a fortnight. Uh, and this is before the EU concessions start to roll in. Well, I think that's right. But I mean, again, if you look at where the Labour votes are, this is the really matter of concern, I think, that uh, what is happening is that Labour's just piling up these huge majorities in London and elsewhere. But really the crucial uh, marginal seats which you've got to win are in Wales and the Midlands and the North. And this is where the, the uh, opinion of Labour supporters is it, it being eroded away. And this is, this is the real worry, that we lose seats uh, there and uh, at, at the expense, in terms of percentage of the poll, we may still be at 40-something percent. But if it's all in the wrong place, that's not going to help. Yeah, I think if it mirrors the referendum result, <coughs> you know, you will see overwhelming concentrations of uh, Remain and, you know, Leave vote in you know, the university towns, London. Um, but with the electoral system we have, that could translate into quite a, quite a heavy defeat uh, without too much trouble. It's a very difficult situation for Labour because... Um, there's no way of really telling how it's going to map out through any future election, isn't it? Um, but at the same time, Labour did, in its last manifesto, which was a, uh, in very many respects a highly successful one, mm -hmm. uh, it did uh, explicitly say that we would be out of the single market and uh, we would get control of, of immigration. Um, and that is something that uh, certainly with the Theresa May Checkers plan, looks uh, far more dubious than, than, his, uh, uh, than, than did before.
I think that's right. I think it's just worth remembering that uh, we were assured by David Cameron, reinforced by the £9 million cost brochure, if you remember, that went out just before the uh, referendum period started, promising that uh, whatever the result of the referendum would be respected by Parliament. Then we had a large majority in Parliament triggering Article 50. Um, Then we had the general election, where something like 80% of all the MPs, Labour and Conservative, were elected on manifestos promising to implement the uh, referendum result. And so I think a lot of people are really entitled to feel very uh, upset by the fact that we've got a kind of political elite in this country which is really doing its very best to subvert that decision and just simply not to carry it out. And, you know, I think the dangers for this in terms of a widening gulf between London and the rest of the country, between the political elite and uh, just ordinary working people. It's a real concern. And I think the danger is that this is going to finish up by eroding support for more moderate centre parties on Labour and Conservatives. And we'll finish up with just more extreme parties, maybe UKIP getting back in the frame again. Um, and, you know, the, the, the whole political situation in this country fragmenting. And this seems to me to be a very poor outcome, really, that uh, we want to try and avoid if we possibly can. Yeah, I think the Tories have misjudged the scale of the backlash, to be honest. If you remember the first few days after Chequers, the right-wing press were actually cautiously welcoming of it. I think that collapsed very quickly once the letters started rolling in, the comments, and they realised very quickly this has really uh, really caused an eruption of absolute rage uh, and incandescence uh, among the Tory base, uh, obviously not to mention the UKIP as well. Um, which is why the press have now realised they've had to attack it as well. So they've lost the right-wing press, they've lost a huge chunk of the Tory base. Um, and I think John's right, I think they, you know, they really need to think carefully about the long-term consequences of uh, a betrayal on an issue like Brexit, which was so much about sort of lost sort of faith and trust in the political system anyway, which I think will make this uh, much more hard to stomach. It was a, a huge people. party management problem that the Tories are having at the moment. Um, There are stories of Gavin Barwell, who is Theresa May's uh, chief of staff, I believe, and uh, uh, currently arranging interviews with him with with party local constituency association chairman and uh, also offering the the chance of a conference call with Theresa May to try to reassure them. And when that's happening, you can tell that things are, well, basically the doors are are falling off the, uh, the car. Um, so it's uh, it's a massive problem uh, for the for the Tories, and in a sense, um, you know, from a Labour point of view, it's it's it, there's a degree of of satisfaction watching the whole thing unravel. But there is also the feeling that there, but the grace of God go I. Well, I think that's right, and uh, I think the Labour Party is split on this. I mean, obviously, you've got some people uh, like Kate Hoey and Graham Stringer and and. Uh, and Frank Field, who voted with the government on this, who feel very strongly about uh, trying to maintain the momentum behind the Brexit vote. Um, But you've then got a very large number of uh, Labour MPs who I think have very much remained at heart and probably wouldn't be that uh, dissatisfied with the proposals that came from Chequers. Now, whether that's going to be enough to get the whole deal through Parliament, especially with the uh, erosion of... uh, you know, what's there already, which is likely to happen once it gets into the hands of the European Union, let alone further amendments put down by MPs. Clearly, there's enormous polarisation the, within the Conservative Party, between the 
uh, the uh, ERG, which is the right-wing group around Jacob Rees-Mogg, and the sort of left-wing Tories around um, Anna Subri and these sort of people. Um, you know, whether, whether Theresa May is going to be able to hold it all together, I think it really does remain to be seen. Although I think even if she was ousted, uh, I, I think the problems would still be there. I don't think that would solve the problem. And I'm not sure actually there is a majority in Parliament for, for getting rid of her anyway. So even if her vote was triggered by uh, the uh, 1922 committee receiving 48 letters, which I believe is fairly close, whether that would actually generate a change, I don't know. But of course, it would be another huge distraction in the middle of a hugely important period while these negotiations are moving towards the meaningful vote which is going to have to take place in October or November this year. So there's some really bad options there. Yeah, I think this is what's probably holding back uh, the re-smogs of the world is that they don't really have a majority in the Tory party, uh, which effectively, if not kills out, at least makes it very tricky, uh, you know, the route of going down a leadership election. When you say Tory party, I'm not sure if that's true. I think you're absolutely right about the parliamentary party. Oh, the the party. parliamentary yeah. party, the parliamentary um, party, in terms think, of the MPs, yeah. uh, but certainly not the grassroots. Yeah. Um, if you look at the popularity polling for the uh, from the Conservative member membership, then he's uh, he's very high up, certainly. Um, but absolutely, it's all part of the the living hell that is the uh, the Tories trying to get this through at the moment. But from my point of view, I think it's such a terrible missed opportunity for Labour because if you if you sort of go back a few a few feet and and try and look at this on a on a broader scale. There is a great narrative there, which is the sort of establishment CBI, you know, uh, lobbied uh, uh, British political elite, the Conservative Party at the very centre of that, effectively uh, selling out the British people and the British voters. And Labour, well, it's a missed opportunity, surely, as Labour, uh, uh, the party that is, uh, you know, was set up as the party of the people, of, of, of working people, um, Labour should be striking a big and bold opposition between the remote uh, establishment elite Tory party and, and, and uh, the Labour Party, which is, is representing the, the wood of the people. And um, the, if Labour does not do that, then I fear we could be looking at something like Italy, uh, where we have the rapid rise of the Five Star movement and the Liga, of course, which... Um, Five Star is certainly not right wing, but uh, I, I think the Liga is. Mm. Um, the uh, Five Star is a, a sort of mass populist movement, and and Liga is is a sort of UKIP on steroids, uh, and the two of them are now commanding sixty percent popularity in Italy, and it's a huge worry that if the Labour Party in the United Kingdom effectively allies itself with the Tory elite establishment. It opens the door for that kind of political change of the of the tectonic plates, doesn't it? Well, I think part of the problem is that uh, the way politics are evolving in this country uh, is that the Labour Party is shifting towards being more and more middle class, more and more well-educated, more and more metropolitan, more and more internationalist, perhaps younger, more idealistic, less sort of nativist, less orientated towards trade unions and, and self-help at community level, all this sort of thing, which is really where the working class in this country is coming from. And I think one of the results of all this is that the uh, pressure on the Labour Party in Parliament in particular uh, from its grassroots is very much in a Remain direction. 
Uh, but you need to remember that nearly 40% of the people who voted Labour in the general election in 2015 voted for Leave in 2016. And it's this hugely important group of uh, Labour voters outside London, in Wales, in the Midlands and the North, who Labour is very dependent on to get a majority. And if, by supporting uh, Remain kind of approach to Brexit in the way that has been done, we lose the support of all these people, then we're never getting get back into government again. Absolutely, and at the same time, with the Conservatives um, effectively doing the same thing by the uh, Chequers plan, which is to move the centre of gravity of their of their Brexit really very far, very much closer to uh, uh, effectively the Liberal Democrats or or part of this sort of New Labour faction of Labour, if that's not too a dated term, um, then again, they open the door for, for large numbers of people to feel politically disaffected and they either uh, don't vote, which is never good, or they start looking at more extreme parties and, and um, populist parties and, and far-right parties who maybe they don't necessarily agree with all of their values, but they feel that these parties speak for them. And I think it's a hugely worrying uh, thing for the uh, for the future of our of our democracy. It's a, a transitional phase almost, and um, you know the the two main parties have the chance to to pull this back and to kind of reset the uh, you know reset us back onto a, a stable course. But there there are some pretty um, worrying developments ahead if if both main parties don't talk to that particular demographic that you're talking about, the sort of non-London-based middle class, uh, there, could be, there could be trouble ahead. I think that's right. I, mean, I think the reality is, though, that a lot of these uh, C2s, Ds and Es, the ones who've been moving away from Labour, actually feel uh, more support for the line taken by the uh, ERG, the Economic Research Group, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, because they are, you know, quite uh, nationalist. They do feel that uh, that uh, what Jacob Smog's saying is, you know, rings bells with them in terms of um, maintaining independence and all this sort of thing. Um, and this is, I think, a, a very worrying development. It shows you what an Alice sort of topsy turvy Alice in yeah. Wonderland world we're in, when someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is being seen as a man of the people, doesn't it? Well, I, 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 <laughs> yes, I think. <laughs> I, I, th I think that's right. It's, it, it, I mean, it, it's funny, but it's not. It's really <laughs> rather worrying. I think the, the state aid is also a big issue that the Labour haven't touched on too much from what I've seen, but May was very explicit in saying that yes. as part of her Chequers deal, this would tie us into the EU's state aid rules, effectively, Absolutely. Uh, which would kind of kill the Corbyn uh, scheme before he'd even taken power. Um, so talk of uh, May getting this through on the back of Labour votes. Uh, I think Labour would have to be very careful about voting for something which explicitly rules out large chunks of their most popular manifesto in years. Um, and whatever gets said at the minute, and you know, it's, it's trendy at the minute to, to say that, you know, the state age rules would be no issue to a Labour government pushing Corbyn's manifesto, but, uh, you know, it's just not credible. I mean, when, when Corbyn, uh, you know, was elected to the leadership role, the Treasury told him plainly, you know, most of these plans you're bringing to, bringing to us, uh, they're simply not possible uh, within the EU structures. Uh, and most of that will come down to the state aid rules, which the Chequers plan binds us into. And that's hugely damaging for a future Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn, because um, if he uh, effectively says, look, I am anti-establishment, I am the man of the people, 
we're going to get this uh, we're going to get this country sorted out. We're going to invest large amounts of money uh, in all of the right places, uh, and then only to find that the European uh, Union or European Commission says, "Oh no, you're not." Uh, there, have you seen the Common Rule Book? Um, you know that that is that is the that is a huge problem for Labour, isn't it? Um, and you know the Common Rule Book, of course, is the is not the Common Rule Book. It's it's uh, it's the EU Rule Book, which we then uh, sign up to. And there's no way short of having a, a dramatic change and uh, voting to completely realign ourselves and effectively have a hard Brexit, uh, um, there's no way that, that that could be changed by a Labour government, uh, you know, um, even with a, you know, with any kind of uh, moderate majority, I would say. Yeah. I mean, all this really turns on what is going to happen next uh, as, as, as things develop. I mean, we're moving towards uh, a recess now, but it, then all these MPs are going to come back again in the autumn. The negotiations with the European Union, it's probably going to be November before this meaningful vote comes to uh, the House of Commons. But I must say, it's not at all clear to me uh, whether there's going to be a majority in the House of Commons for anything really very much. I mean, either the uh, sort of deal that was brokered out at Chequers or uh, a clean Brexit. And if that happens, um, it'd be a bit like the, if you remember the situation that developed in the House of Commons over reform in the House of Lords. I think there were four or five different proposals, all of which yeah. failed to get a majority. So actually, in the end, nothing happened. But here, yeah, we can't have nothing happening. Something has got to happen. And then we're back to question about uh, you know where the Labour's going to Labour's going to finish up on the referendum issue. If we do have a referendum, what the question is going to be, uh, whether we're going to have multiple questions, whether we're going to have three choices rather than two, whether there's going to be time to get all this done before uh, Article 50 expires in the end of March next year. Because if we have a referendum after the, the um, 29th of March, then we won't be having one about whether we stay in the European Union, whether we're having one about whether we want to apply to join. If we're in that territory, then what's going to happen about the Eurozone? What's going to happen about our rebate? Do the European Union really want to have us back in again if we've just had a referendum saying we want to come out? I mean, there's some really daunting issues that are going to have to be confronted here. And I think that um, in terms of the betrayal narrative um, that so many people are now beginning to talk about, the idea, even just the very existence uh, of, a, of a second referendum, would not go down well at all. Um, it would merely confirm to literally millions of people that the, in inverted commas, the establishment, the elite, um, are running things for themselves and they have no care or regard for normal British people. Um, and uh, it would, uh, I think, uh, complicate matters dramatically and anger people on on a level that we haven't yet seen. Well, I think I think there is a real risk there. Um, you know, I think the country is very divided. Uh, divided in terms of income, it's got all sorts of problems about regional disparities. It's got age disparities, and if on top of that you add a whole lot of concerns about whether democratic decisions really mean anything. Absolutely. You know, we're in very dangerous territory. You're biting the hand that feeds you, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, I think the danger is that you finish up with more and more distrust of politicians and the, the democratic system that we've built up, you know, painfully but very successfully over a long period of time begins to crack. I mean, I think there are some really broad 
problems around here, not just, I mean, there are some, obviously, some political management problems in the short term, which yeah. are pretty acute, but I think there's some other bigger, yeah. wider issues that are coming up behind this. F philosophical ones, and almost, um, not quite yet, but maybe if a second re referendum were ever to go ahead, it would be um, existential issues, really. You know, what's the point of our political system? Why does it exist? Is it some kind of fiction, you know? Um, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of, uh, uh, there's a view that, uh, you know, uh, as you see in the matrix with people taking the red pill and suddenly seeing things as they are. Um, and, and many could say that um, Britain basically being told to re-vote so, so they get the right answer, you know, could be a red pill moment for a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and they would suddenly see things in their, in their view as, as they really are. And that's hugely dangerous. Uh, for, 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 for our country, I think. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly not a good look. Thank you very much, and catch us on Facebook and Twitter, and we will see you soon. Goodbye.